Praise the Lord. Good to be here. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Who say, your God reigns. But he didn't get the part. Isaiah says, the feet, not the face. They did not have shoes during this time. The feet were cracked. So that the beauty of the message was not coming from the face of the one who delivered it, but the good news was in what they brought. So just look at the feet, the cracked feet, and what the Lord has brought. Praise the Lord for Elder Speaker, Elder Kennedy, Elder Pickett for bringing me here and organizing this conference and having the confidence to have me speak on behalf of the Lord as it were. As soon as I open my mouth, you can tell that there's something different about me. (laughs) I don't know what the Lord is trying to do. I already have so many things going against me. English is my second language. I grew up in Zimbabwe. And then, to make matters worse, I have a cold. I'm like, how bad does it get for someone? (laughs) But praise the Lord. We'll go to the text and we'll hear what the Lord has given me, if anything that is worthy of the name of Christ. Be praying for me that the Lord will give me utterance, that I'll be as clear as he would have me clear. I don't speak very clearly when you talk to me, but once in a while I do speak clearly. And that's when I'm talking about Jesus. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we just... Praise your name, we glorify you for who he is and what he has accomplished on behalf of his people to save his people from sin and condemnation and to bring them all to himself. And Lord, we say that he is worthy of glory and honor. And Lord, I pray now that you would speak to your people through me, through my weakness, that Christ may be exalted in the hearts of your people. Lord, I just am honored to be here in my weakness to attempt to speak for you. Help me, Lord Jesus. Our text is going to be from John 6. John chapter 6. 
And we are going to read verses 26 to 29, and then we'll skip and get to verses 37 and 39. John records for us and says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they say to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Verses 37 to 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The word of the Lord. If you'd like a title, I've given this teaching the title, The Father Has Set His Seal. The Father Has Set His Seal. The testimony of scripture is that God has entrusted the salvation of his people to Christ and not to you or to me. It sounds to me like Jesus is saying those words that we just read were words from the mouth of Jesus. That the Father has set his seal on him. And we are going to explore what that means in the context of salvation. It sounds to me in the context of the conversation that Jesus is having with the Jews. The Jews come to Jesus and ask him, what shall we do? To do the works of God. And the last time that I took an English class, works is plural. And immediately Jesus corrects their thinking and says, no, it's not works, it's work. The works of God are not for you to do, they are for me to do. Because the seal was put on me and not on you. Jesus' understanding, you cannot read the book of John and not have the understanding that Jesus thought and understood that the responsibility of salvation laid on his shoulders. He said he must bring the sheep to the father and he will lose none. And it sounds to me like He is saying it was his responsibility 
alone to bring you and I to God. And to understand the gospel, we need to understand what God was working in Jesus. Why Jesus and not Moses? Why Jesus and not Adam? Why Jesus and not you? Jesus was set aside by the Father, given by the Father, appointed by the Father as the surety of the covenant for his people. The sheep are not responsible for bringing themselves to the shepherd. From my reading, it is the shepherd who looks out for the sheep. I grew up heading cattle. We had 50 head of cattle. I grew up with my grandparents. And not a single day did any of my cattle ever came looking for me. It never happened. And it is not going to begin with you. This is what I'm saying. The gospel is assumed. And so very few people preach it. And very few believe it. Because very few know it. The gospel now is, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I'll be taught the word of God. The gospel has become do better. Moralism. It is Christian yoga. It is raising good children. It is whatever you do in the name of Christ. The pulpit says they know the gospel, but they don't preach it. You, you had the testimony from Elder Banks yesterday about his daughter. Hours upon hours with a lot of jumping and hollering, but no Christ. Why? Because the pulpit assumes it. But they don't preach it. And the pews think they know it because the pulpit said God loves everybody. And so when the pulpit and the pews get together, they talk about what the lost sheep have to do to find the lost shepherd. Instead of what the lost shepherd did to find the lost sheep. Lost sheep looking for the lost shepherd. No wonder why they can't find each other. The message of the gospel has moved away from being about Christ and his gathering of the sheep to himself. To you and what you do for him. 
And many have no assurance of salvation because they have made the work of salvation their work to do. So they make their own covenants with God. Lord, if you just do this for me, then I will for you. But listen to me, Samuel. God only has one covenant that he honors. The covenant of grace. The covenant in the blood of his son. God only has one sacrifice that he accepts. God only has one obedience that pleases him. God only has one kind of blood that is visible to him. God only has one son that he hears. Jesus prayed and said in John 11, Father, I know you always hear me. It's good to be found in the one that God always hears. Because you and I can't say that. You can't say, oh, Father, I know you always hear me. God always hears you, but he doesn't hear you. (laughs) Salvation. I'm going somewhere. I want you to, if the Lord will give me grace, to understand why it's important that the Father set his seal on Jesus. And I'm going to illustrate that. I'm going to use text to illustrate that doctrine because it's very important. To understand that we have to know that there is no fire department in heaven. And Jesus is not an employee there. There are no ambulances in heaven. What I'm saying is, Jesus has always been plan A. Jesus has always been plan A because the Father loves the Son. And because the Father loves the Son, the Father has given him things that he may be honored as the Father is honored. When you truly love, you give. In John 3.35, John says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So do you see the cause and effect? Things have been given to Christ's hands they all have been put into his hands because the Father loves the Son. And Jesus himself would come and echo the same statement and say in John 5, 20, 23, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Marvel at Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. It sounds like the Son is also sovereign. (laughs) For the Father judges no one, but has committed 
all judgment to the Son. For what reason, Jesus? Verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the, the love of the Father for the Son is the reason why God has committed all judgment to the Son. All judgment to give life and judgment to condemnation. Salvation is about the honor of the Son. The fall of Adam was about the honor of the Son. Because Adam could not bring sons to God by himself. Because if he did that, if he could do that, then it means God has to sum up all things in Adam and not in Jesus. Because Jesus is plan A and because the father loves his son, he says in Isaiah 49, 8, in an acceptable time, I've had you and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to do what? To restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. And if you go and read that chapter in Isaiah 49, it's talking about the Messiah and his appointment in the salvation of his people, the gathering of the elect from Israel and the Gentiles. All that work has been given to the Son. The Son has been given as the covenant for his people. But what does it mean to be given as a covenant to the people? Generally, a covenant is a solemn promise or an agreement between two parties. It has parties, it is not much different from a contract. It has parties to the contract, and the parties to the contract agree and sign to be bound by the terms of that contract. The parties agree on what needs to be done for the purpose of which the contract was made. In the New Testament, the covenant takes on more the characteristics of a will and lasting testament. And in the language of the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, 16, 22, our church's name is Berean Sovereign Grace Church. And because of that, I have to read the text to show you where I'm coming from. Hebrews 9, 16-22. The text says, For where there's a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, Not even the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was dedicated without blood. 
He's talking about the necessity of blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of cows and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, Almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no remission. And so Jesus was given as a covenant to God's people. He was given as the one who would come and fulfill the terms of that covenant. He was given as the testator of the will and last testament that had all of God's promises in his blood. So Jesus was the surety of the new covenant. The new covenant made in his blood. What is a surety? Because to be a surety is part of what it means to be given as a covenant. It's speaking to Christ being the mediator. The only mediator. Jesus is not one among mediators. He's the only mediator. According to William Webster, a surety is one who has become legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another. In duty of another. And it sounds to me like if you still remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. The brothers go to Egypt and they met with Joseph. And of course, Joseph asked them about his brother that he loved. Benjamin. And you know the story. Jacob loved Benjamin. Jacob loved Joseph. Jacob does not want to let go of Benjamin. Reuben comes and he says somewhere in Genesis 42 that he would give his own two sons a surety if they would not bring back Benjamin. Judah came and said he would be surety for his brother Benjamin. He said to the father, for your servant became surety for the Lord to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father. Not for two weeks. Forever. Benjamin was loved of the father, and Judah became surety for him to bring him back from Egypt Judah made his own life security, guarantee for the life of Benjamin. And this was not about Benjamin. This was about Christ. (laughs) So we too were loved of the father as Benjamin was loved of the father. 
And Christ Jesus became our surety to bring us back to the Father. From where? From Egypt. You were in Egypt. Slavery of sin. What was Israel doing in Egypt? They were slaves. And they needed to be delivered. So Christ was given as the surety for his people to deliver them from their slavery of sin and death and condemnation in Egypt. This is Egypt. And so Jesus was under the same obligation as the surety of the new covenant for his brothers to his father. And he said to his father, if I do not bring them back to you, then I shall bear the blame before you forever. So the honor of Christ is what is at stake in salvation. The honor of Christ is what is at stake in salvation. And he alone, like Judah, could bear the burden and the blame of bringing us back to the Father. But it sounds to me like part of the obligation for Jesus to bring his people to the Father required that he died. Because according to the provision of a will and last testament, the benefits of a will and last testament do not flow to the beneficiaries unless the testator does what? Unless he dies. So you see, the death of Christ is a necessary, was a necessary part of his work as the surety of his people. And so when Jesus came and was walking in shoe leather, his understanding was that he had work to do, his food was to do the will of the Father, to accomplish, to finish, to perfect the work that the Father gave to him. And so he came as one who was on a mission, and as he was drawing closer and closer to the mission of the cross, his understanding was, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And as he was about to go on the cross, his understanding was he was going there to form, to make a covenant in his blood. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for many, for the remission of sins. And so the cross was the place at which Jesus was to inaugurate the new covenant that put sin into remission. And the new covenant was not in the blood of bulls or gods. It was not in your blood, but in his own blood. The cross is the place where he would come and sign and seal the papers of our salvation and say, it is finished. The payment had been made and the check had not bounced. And we can't preach a Jesus who bounces checks of salvation. 
in eternity past, Jesus was made the covenant for the people. God the Father set his seal on him, all his people who were chosen in him. In his life, he was the covenant for his people, bound by its terms. On the cross, he was given as the covenant of his people so that all who were in him were also signed and sealed as having honored everything that Jesus fulfilled and perfected in his life and in his death. And because of that, and because of that, you hear Apostle Paul come and say in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For there to not be condemnation, you have to be in the one who is the covenant. You have to be in Christ Jesus. Because the sentence of justification or condemnation is only removed in Jesus. (laughs) Only in Jesus. And I want to illustrate this teaching and bring more clarity to it. I'm not getting away from it. I want to illustrate this teaching on why Jesus is the covenant for his people and what that actually means. The gospel has to be a message that gives people hope. It is good news only if you are listening to it as good news. But you see, amnesty is not good news to one who is a U.S. citizen. (laughs) Amnesty is not good news for one who has their papers. But for the illegal immigrant, it's good news. So, so whether the gospel is good news or not, it depends where you are. The gospel is good news if you hear it as the gospel. The gospel is good news when you hear it as a sinner. Someone who is not a sinner has no use for good news. But if you are a sinner, the news that Christ accomplished your salvation and you are accepted in him completely and perfectly, you can't beat that kind of news. In Job, we are going to go to Job. I have a few verses from there to illustrate what I am teaching. We're going to go to Job chapter 42. And we're going to read verses 7 to 10. And the text says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering 
and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Nemathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. <laughs> and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job was given as a covenant to his friends. He was set aside for his friends. It's there in the text. I'm going to show you. You know the story of Job and what has happened up to this point. God shows up and he is angry at Job's friends at this point. And if nothing is done for them, they are tossed. God is going to kill them. But see the origin of the solution. It's God who provides the solution. He says, you Job's friends are in such much trouble. And if I don't do something for you, you are so dead. I am going to give you a solution in the one that I've appointed to make a sacrifice for you. Verse 8 of Job 42. The Lord says, Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my seven Job. See the instruction. You go to Job, not to anybody else. And offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my seven Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So if you want to see if your theology is right, you go read the book of Job and be on Job's side. <laughs> because when a lot of people read the book of Job, they think Job is just some egotistical guy. But God comes and vindicates Job and says, guess what? Job is righteous. He has said everything that is right about me. God says to Job and his friends that to bring seven bulls and seven rams. Someone was talking about seven last night. That's a type of a complete and perfect sacrifice. And God says, no Job's friends you are not going to offer them to me by yourself. God to my servant Job, I have set him apart for you and he will offer it for you as your representative, as your mediator, that you may not die. That I may turn my wrath away from you. And the Lord said, this is what is going to happen. Job is going to pray for you. And I will accept him. Lest I deal with you according to your folly. 
Job had to pray for his friends before he made the sacrifice. Before he made a sacrifice on their behalf. And it sounds to me like the Lord Jesus in John 17. He prayed for his people before he did what? He offered himself up on the cross. God says Job's friends would be accepted not because of themselves, but because of the one that he had appointed for them. Job's friends would be accepted in another. One whom God appointed for them. One who would come and make a sacrifice on their behalf. But listen to this. The one that God appointed for Job's friends who were supposed to die had received good testimony from God about his righteousness <laughs> before he made the sacrifice. In the book of Job, four times, Job is said to be righteous. None like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And in all these things, Job did not sin. You have not spoken of me as my servant Job has done. So what is that saying? That is speaking to the qualifications of the one that God appoints to make atonement for his people who are in Job. God says, Job's friends, go to Job and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly. So Job's friends were accepted in Job and because of Job and not themselves. And so we were accepted in Christ because of Christ. And Job's friends were Job's friends before and after the atonement that Job made. We too were Christ's friends before and after the atonement was made. Listen. We were chosen in Christ, given to Christ by the Father from before the foundation of the world. So we were already in Christ by election, but were accepted in Christ by redemption. Job, by his one offering, justified his friends before God. And the Lord Jesus, by his one perfect sacrifice, perfected forever those who are sanctified. If Job was accepted, then his acceptance was the acceptance of his friends. See who is being accepted. Is the one who has been appointed who gets accepted. And your acceptance is not in your doing, is not in your running, is not in what you stop doing, but it's in the one that God set aside for you. So the scriptures say, we were accepted in the beloved. And the resurrection of Christ is God's testimony of our acceptance in him. There's no more work. There's no more work to do to increase 
or decrease our acceptance by God. It is finished, he said. It is finished. So Jesus Christ is our covenant. The Father gave him for his people. For the sake of his people. And the writer of Hebrews will say in Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. So the outworking of that covenant comes through in the death of Christ. For what purpose? For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance and the salvation. And so what that means is there's no other covenant by which you and I can be saved. There's no other currency that trades in heaven that is not Jesus' blood. It is in the new covenant, in the blood of Christ, the covenant of grace that gives the promise of the eternal inheritance, eternal life, everlasting righteousness. And God the Father put his seal on Jesus, his seal of approval of Christ. I'm a chemist. And I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm supposed to be in the lab mixing things. I know how to do that. When we have made a product and it has been qualified as having met all the specifications, you put a seal of approval. It has passed the test. It's good. It is whatever he said about it. God the Father has put his seal of approval on Christ. As the only one befitting to be the mediator and the covenant and the surety and the high priest and the sacrifice for the salvation of his people. And so, going back to where we started in John 6... Jesus will come and say, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. What is that saying? Jesus is saying, stop working to end salvation. Salvation is the only Thing that I know of where laziness is encouraged. It is the only occupation that I know that God encourages people to be lazy. Let me show you that. 
go to Robin's floor. I'll show you. Just you think I'm making it up. I'll just read four verses from Romans 4, verse 1 to 5, maybe 1 to 5, yeah. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who is lazy, his laziness is accounted to them as righteousness. You got to be lazy for Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying don't go and not work at work. When it comes to salvation, God has determined that he will not share his glory with another because salvation is for the glory of the Son. I'll give you one last illustration and I'll go and sit. I grew up in Zimbabwe. As I said earlier, I was raised by my grandparents. And the custom and the culture, then and even now, is that every family name have to have a bull. A bull that carries the family name. And it receives the name from some ritual. The bull is set apart because it carries the family name. But most importantly, it was set apart to make atonement. Because it was set apart, it could not be used for anything. You could not use it for plowing or pulling any kind of burdens. It was set aside to die to make atonement for sin within the family. The family bull could only die one way. Not when you had visitors and you're trying to throw a party for them. The family bull could only die to make atonement and propitiate for sins of the family whose name it carried. Only those who are the guyos. And so this bull was sealed and no other bull or oxen or cow could be offered in its place to make atonement. And Jesus knows all that. Jesus knows all these things. In our context, there's a lot of paganism around it. But the theology still remains true. Because Jesus taught it. So when he says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, 
Because God the Father has set his seal on him. God the Father has set his seal on him that he may be the only one who could die as the Lamb of God to make atonement for his people. And Jesus did not appoint himself as the bull that we had did not appoint itself. Jesus was appointed as the covenant for his people by his father. The writer of Hebrews says, and no man takes this honor to himself. But he who is called by God just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, it was God the Father who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ was appointed by the Father to do the work of salvation. So when you come to Christ, you have not been appointed to complete salvation. You are going beyond the boundaries of your call. Even if you were able to do it, there's a problem. God has not appointed you to do it. So Jesus was appointed by the Father, and the Father set his seal on him for the purpose of glorifying his Son as he redeemed his people and gathered his people to himself and summing up all things in heavens, on earth, and underneath the earth. It's all about the Son. Set aside to do holy business. Amen. Amen. Amen.